few years ago, I think it was actually probably about eight or nine years ago, there was a gentleman at the church that I had worked, was uh, the pastor at at the time. I simply knew him as Mr. Ackerman. And he would come in faithfully every week. He would bring his uh, wife in. Uh, she was suffering from dementia uh, fairly badly. And we know the story uh, even here where, you, you know, you, you, you bring your spouse in and you do services together as much as you can. And then there's just a point in time it doesn't work anymore. And that was where he was at. And one Sunday after church, he had uh, stopped by. He wasn't at the service specifically, but he stopped by and he's like, Pastor Scott, Pastor Scott. And he has a real, real deep Dutch accent. Super cool. Super cool. And, and he was like, uh, I was wondering if you could help me with something. And I was like, hey, Mr. Ackerman, I'd love, love to do that. And he was like, it's, it's not Mr. Ackerman, it's Anton. Okay, all right, Anton. And he, he, was, he was like, I, I, I want you and your brother to come in and video uh, my story. I want to share my story in a few, just a few minutes, like a 10-minute thing to, to my family and something that they could hold on to for uh, the next few years and maybe the generation and great-grandkids that had never met him and, and things like that. And I knew a bit in little tiny pieces of his story, and I was like, well, that should be pretty interesting. I knew that he was a person that had spent time in a concentration camp in World War II, and I knew that uh, there was some pretty obviously horrific things that he saw uh, in that concentration camp, and there was some uh, things that happened in his life there that changed the course of his life. And he's like, I want to get it on video. I want to get it on video. And so we went in, and... It was my brother and myself and a cameraman, and we, we uh, went in there and set up in his kitchen, and he just, we asked him a few questions, and everything just started coming out. And let's just see the first minute or so of what he had to say. I am Anton Ackerman. When I was 17, we got the Japanese invasion, and the Japanese occupied uh, Indonesia. So and they went around and picked us all up. But they picked my father and me up and we were loaded in an, on an open truck. And the school buildings were transformed in a concentration camp. I was there with, with a lot of other guys and I noticed uh, how they reacted. The man's transformation to be a free guy to an intern guy. And um, a lot of people acted up pretty badly. And I saw that. I also saw people that uh, uh, were able to deal with the situation. They were Christian, they prayed. And I noticed that. So at one point I decided that I uh, should pray too and I contacted one of the ministers and told him about my 
by Felix and that, uh, what I would like to do. I was one of the few that did that. So that way I, uh, I found the Lord and I got properly trained and educated. And uh, then it was up to me to start applying it. It was up to him to start applying living for the Lord. Two days before he was released and his dad were released from the concentration camp, his mom died in the other concentration camp for the women two days before the war ended. And he went on to come into Los Angeles, work for the aerospace industry, and was just a really neat guy to know. Passed away a few years ago. But he wanted us to know, his family to know where he got hope from. Where he had hope. We, we will not survive without something to live for beyond the barbed wire fences of the concentration camp of our lives. We'll just give up as so many people he saw did. He was 13 years old and was forced to work in the hospital, if you could call it that. And he said he just saw thousands of men die. And he could have just given up, he said. And it's a common condition in our lives, isn't it? It's called despair. And you see so many people walking around with just a blank look on their faces. And when you think about it, we live in a pretty amazing place. There is so much to see, so much to do, so much to go and be a part of. We look out at the shopping areas and the, the food. Oh boy, do we have some of the best food on the planet. We look out on the roads that take us to so many different places. But is that what we settle for? Is that it? it is it the best thing that we can think of for next summer's vacation to Hawaii or even just next, next Friday's venture down to the beach? Because see, if our, if our hope is a comfortable, successful existence until we die type of hope, we will inevitably fall into a lifestyle that Pascal called licking the earth. Ego carnality, materialism. But if we have something beyond that barbed wired fence of our life and sin to look forward to, something that's beautiful, that's ours, something to live for that can never be taken away from us, we can face anything. You see, we live our lives 
right now out of a vital connection with the future. And that's why hope makes us invincible as Christians. In Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31, God is saying, my promises can give you hope so that you rise up on eagle's wings, as it says, let me show you how. Isaiah is prophesying to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. They were in the concentration camp of their country. They were in exile. They had been in captivity for some decades and they were teetering on the edge of despair. And you can imagine them going, let's say they were 60 years into the seventy. They can't really see the end of it coming. And they think, well, there goes my life. Have you ever been there some of those times? You sit there and you go, where have the years gone? Zip. There it goes. And some people live their life in this mindset of all I can look forward now is just one long death sentence. So what does God do? He comes along with an infusion of hope. He hasn't abandoned us. He did not abandon them. He's bringing us to the display of His glory. That's the future of the whole world. So reality is more than this prison camp. And it's way better as well. There's something beyond the barbed wire. God himself. And he's coming. Amen? He's coming. And in three movements in this section of Scripture, Isaiah points the way out of despair toward renewal in hope. He launches off in this section in verse 27 where he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. The Jewish exiles living under a kind of mass house arrest in Babylon obviously felt abandoned by God. You know, the direction of my life, the direction of our life as a country, they're saying, well, we might have as well fallen off the face of the earth. The justice due to me completely escapes God's notice. Where are you, God? And so many people, and maybe you are one of them, have asked, where is God when I need Him? Where is God when I need Him? He demands so much, but doesn't lift a finger to help. And this is happening, God, time after time after time. And the way of this thinking is not new. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, wrote these words, By what means Satan first drew mankind from the obedience of God, the Scripture does witness, to wit, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. Where are you, God? And Isaiah articulates for us, our poisonous thoughts, he says those thoughts out loud, but it's not to comfort us and coddle us in a certain way. It's to challenge us. Why do you say, 
Why do you say that? And Isaiah is reminding us of who God is and what He will do and what He does. Martin Luther, I was reading this this week. I love the letters that Luther wrote to different people because he, he just told people the way it is. And so there was this other reformer, Philip Melanchthon, whose faith was wavering. And Martin Luther wanted to send him and did send him a letter, and it's recorded for us, and it's pretty interesting. I pray for you very earnestly, and I am deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech and thus rendering my prayers in vain. I love Luther. That's awesome. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or the Spirit. But I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. Indeed, I am more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold his cause when it is falling or to raise it up again when it has fallen or to move it forward when it is standing. If you are not worthy, if we are not worthy instruments to accomplish his purpose, he will find others. If we are not strengthened by his promises, where in all the world are the people to whom these promises apply? But more of this another time. After all, my writing this is like pouring water into the sea. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. Why in the world would you have unwavering faith? If you have an unwavering faith, you don't get the love of God. No one lives well with an unwavering faith. They live incredibly well. And Isaiah reasons with us, challenges us, the irrational side of us that says, why God? And it's all to get us back on track. We see different types of doubt in here. One kind of doubt that struggles to believe in, in view of the, the slings and arrows and outrageous fortune that's out there. A doubt that's open to God's answers and actually is willing to listen. Have you stumbled across times in your life when you're like, okay, I, I have no idea what's going on here. God, explain please. That's when you're willing to listen, right? The other kind of doubt resists belief. Even when good and sufficient reasons are offered, the kind of doubt folds its arms and says, ah, I still doubt it, you're, you're dumb. Nothing you say will satisfy me. And that kind of doubt isn't even able to hear what God has to say. Have you, have you seen and heard people or know people that just won't even hear it? And the Jewish exiles seem to be floating somewhere between the struggling faith and the cynical defiance. So, so what does God do? He goes to the next step with them. He's already shown them his own, uh, the way that he is incomparable over all of creation as we looked at last week, right? 
just not even one star is missing. He holds all of this. God pays attention. You should be comforted by the fact that God's eye is on everything, including them. But now he reminds them of something about themselves. There's this Jacob-Israel thing, how they may see themselves. God sees them as under a covenant of grace. They still have a place in his heart. We may not get this idea of why does it say right here in this verse, Jacob and Israel. Long before, in this crisis of his life, the patriarch Jacob was wrestling with God. He was desperate for God's blessing. And God blessed him. God always blesses people who are desperate enough to wrestle with them. And as a token of that new beginning in Jacob's life, God did what? Changed his name. Have you noticed that through Scripture? Hey, you are no longer Saul. You are Paul. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so he changes his name to Israel. And now Isaiah is reminding the generation that's at hand there during the crisis of their lives that successful striving with God is their heritage. Their their forefather prevailed with God and so can they and so can we. With the finished work of Christ on the cross guaranteeing even the most meager of faith all of God's promises, he sees us not as victims, but what does Scripture call us? We are more than conquerors. And God says to us, not only do I want you to know how great I am for you, I also want you to know how significant you are to me, even with your imperfect faith, which has led you into captivity, you have striven with me and have prevailed, and I will never back out of my promises to you. And so he addresses their despair. And he addresses it even further with his greatness. In verses 28 and 29, Do you know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable, unsearchable in some other uh, translations. So here's, here's the thing that we have to remember, everyone. Everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. And what does Isaiah say? There's four things about God in verse 28 that he says. First of all, he says God is eternal. He's everlasting. You and I, we're locked into this little slot of time called right now. This present moment is all we experience, right? 
and the urgency of this moment can squeeze us and its pressures so that we make costly mistakes out of our own exaggerated sense of maybe an emergency going on in life. And here's what happens. We always sin too soon. We always move too soon. God is not confined to time. That is hard for us to understand. We see it in Scripture, but it's hard for us to really grasp our, our minds around that. And, and His sweeping eternity, God is equally present to all points of time, and it, it blows our mind. He's always out ahead of us. And so we, we, we should never panic. We should never panic if things aren't falling together according to our deadlines. God is working His purpose out His way at His pace without our hurried, nervous desperation. God is eternal. First thing that Isaiah lets us know and be reminded of here. Hey, Israel, you are in the camp of despair, just remember, God is eternal. Second, God is the creator of everything. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We just can't, we can't even understand it. There's not a single square inch on this earth unknown to God. Isn't it amazing every year? I don't know if you ever look into uh, some of the science journals or different things like that. Um, I, I love reading a little uh, thing that comes out uh, every month or so from Answers in Genesis. And just every, every few weeks... They find something new here on earth. Under the water, in the air, in the jungle, whatever. Little fish, big fish, a butterfly, whatever. And you sit there and you go, how after all of these years, we have found this and no one's ever found it before. There is not a single square inch on this earth unknown to God. God's up there. Yeah, created that. You like it? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Not surprising to me that you finally found it. We cannot live beyond the range of His presence. Anywhere life takes us, whether it's Babylonian exile or a lonely room in the dorm or at home or sitting in a car by yourself driving for miles and miles and miles wondering what is going on. God's there. God's there for us. We lie in His grace and power at all times, everywhere. That is why Isaiah says, Hey, Israel, hey, Scott, 
God is the creator of everything. Remember that. Third, what does it say in there? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. God is always at work. Is number three there. We tire daily. And if you claim that you don't tire, you're a liar. Tire, liar, tire, liar. You need nourishment. You need rest. We spend about a third of our lives asleep in bed. I would argue some do more. But why? Because you're recouping strength and you do it every single day until one day you die. You die. God does not need restoration. He's always at work. Psalm 121.4 Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither neither sleep nor slumber. He is eternally inexhaustible, a fountain of exuberant joy towards His creation. In any given moment of your life, He is actively accomplishing probably about 10,000 things you aren't aware of at the same time in your own life. He never grows weary or tired, but is always alert, always able, always cares, always covering you in His grace. Everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable, unsearchable. Man, this really bugs some people, and I, I actually, I love the fact that it bugs some people, that they can't figure out God. I, I, I actually find joy in that. <laughs> I just don't understand God. Good, that's a good place to start. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Is your understanding infinite? I'm just going to answer that. No. We try to find this deepened insight into the meaning of the purpose of events. And it's striking when we can't trace all of the moments of His hand when people freak out and go, I don't understand. But for every event that we can interpret, there are 10,000 that we cannot. And that's why... The Bible is affirming that here. Life is very often bewildering to us, but it is not bewildering to God. There are depths to God's wisdom that we cannot access. If our lives are not exactly the way we would like them to be, we can be sure they are precisely the way God wants them to be. He knows what He's doing. So we don't live by explanations, we live by promises. We don't figure out God by our brains. There's some things we can figure out, but what, is, what can we figure out? What He's told us, what He's given to us.
what we need to know. We submit to him by faith. That's the whole idea of faith. God is always right now, always right here, always at work, and always wise. And I am not. And because God is always right now and always right here and always at work and always wise, that changes everything, doesn't it? Because God is not only glorified in Himself, He also shares His strength with us in our weakness. And that's what verse 29 says. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks, might He He increases power. God gets involved in our lives by making His power perfect in our weakness. And that word there... Weary, faint in some of your versions that you have there. That, that's key to this section in verse 29. And it's key throughout this whole section of Scripture. It's, it's mentioned over seven times. God is speaking to who? People in despair. People in the prison camp of life. People that are weak, people that are tired, people that are discouraged, they're faint. I, I remember being in college, barely. I remember just sometimes you're, you're, you're about halfway through a paper and you're like, I'm weary. I'm faint. I'm tired. I don't know if I'm going to finish this thing. I don't even understand this thing. He gives strength to the weary. And you walk out of that semester, let's say, and you know, I have no idea how I ended up passing everything. Well, God does. God knows. He gave you strength. To get through that. Those situations at work, those situations in our families. And you're like, I have no idea how I am going to get through this. Who does know? God knows. And we have to remember that. People that are faint and weary, they're weak in faith. Fatigue that is spiritual, weak in courage. They feel like quitting. It's, it's weaklings like them. Well, let's just be honest. Weaklings like us, weaklings like me, who receive the power of God to live with our heads held high and with a lively confidence in a God that is way bigger than anyone can understand. Because we can see in His promise and this is key, we're not people of expectations, we're people of a promise. Would Jesus say, believe in me, and I will give you life everlasting? Believe in me? Sounds like a promise. We see in his promise a future 
that's beyond the fatigue and the bound up nature of this world. People who find their reasons for living in God have an uncanny resilience about them. And that is what Mr. Ackerman was saying. I was looking about in that concentration camp and there were two type of people. People that had hope and people that gave up and they died. And he went on to look what were the situations for those people that had hope. They were Christians. This was a 13-year-old. Pretty in-depth understanding, in my opinion. And he's like, I, I need that hope. I'm going to go search out someone who knows how to explain to me that hope. How will they know? How will they hear if someone doesn't tell them? And there were people that God placed in that concentration camp to share the gospel. And as you saw, he said, that is where I accepted the Lord. And that is where we find renewal in verses 30 and 31. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Most of us have heard those verses at one time in our lives. Even people that have never heard vast, any parts of the Bible, they've kind of heard that. Renewal. And Isaiah in verse 30 is being very blunt. Human strength at its best and its prime is going to fail. It is no secret that I, I love sports. And part of sports is watching people fail. The San Diego Padres have failed miserably. And so did the Dodgers last week. The point being is that every single person on that field in baseball, every single person in football, every single person that's ever played basketball has had to hang up the cleats at some point. Because inevitably... The vigorous young men stumble, grow weary, grow tired. After church, I want everyone to go outside and jump up and down once. <laughs> and note if you can jump up and down as high as you used to be able to. <laughs> Some of you are like, are you ready for the lawsuits for the broken? Anyway... But isn't it true? It's true. I remember a few years ago, you know, Thanksgiving's coming around the corner. I remember a few years ago uh, playing in one of the great Thanksgiving Julian football extravaganzas. And I, I, I don't remember what happened. All I remembered is that I stumbled and fell. And I was like, I, I'm not getting up like I used to. 
this hurt. It didn't used to hurt. We're no match for the demands of life. Now that's actually good because we're not doomed to our own potential. There is a power beyond ourselves, and we can have that. In verse 31, Isaiah is not merely saying God enables those who draw strength from this promise. He's saying God enables those who draw strength from His promise to do the impossible. The weak soar like eagles, run without tiring, walk without quitting. Their confidence in God will not let them lie down and, and give up. It was, it's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of expecting what God is going to do. And I need to put this into the correct context. God enables those who draw strength from his promise, enables them to do the impossible. What's the impossible? To live forever with him. In our own sin, in our own weakness, in our own anything that we have, that's impossible. But with the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, belief in Him, it's a promise. The impossible is ours. And... You probably didn't pick this up. If you did, you are a very wise sage. But in our worship time musically, today we finished with two songs that were psalms on purpose. Go figure. Because the key word in this whole section of Scripture is one that we hate. W-A-I-T. Wait. What does that mean? Well, to wait for the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with attention of promises revealed, but they're not yet fulfilled. The waiting is not killing time. It's not sitting around drumming your fingers. It's waiting, kind of that tiptoe, waiting with eager longing. It's, it's what, what Paul says in Philippians 3. It's forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing on towards the goal of the prize which is found in Christ. It's not erratic bursts of hyperactivity where you're like, uh, <laughs> You know people like that? Other than me? It's steady, rugged progress sustained by the conviction that the display of God's glory in Christ is found in how we live for Him. Some translations of the Bible there says that the the word hope. And I actually humbly submit that that's wrong because wait waiting is an important part of our faith 
Waiting is what faith does before God's answer shows up. God has given us promises. And He calls us to what? Wait. And Isaiah's point is that such expectancy is the leverage that God uses to empower us. The how question is answered in the word wait. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to let God set the pace? Or are you such a controller that you can't live on God's terms? Is is the prospect of having the glory of the Lord as your eternal delight out beyond the barbed wire fence of this life? Does your heart prize Him? Is it worth the wait? Israel, you are in captivity right now. Is it worth the wait before you get to go back? And if it is, your heart will be endlessly renewed until the great day that the promise is fulfilled. We look for hope in all of the wrong places. It's so many times. We look for reasons to live here inside the barbed wire fence rather, rather than out there in the promised glory of God. And we don't need a quick fix. What we need is a vision, a clear vision of God's grace. A passion for His glory. We need to find rest in His faithfulness. Energy in desiring to live for Him. Christianity is not a way to cut a deal with God for an easier life. And a lot of people preach that now. Following Christ is what renews us to live life for the real payoff in the future that God has promised. So how can we experience more of what God is offering in Isaiah here? We have to ask ourselves two questions, and you can write these down. Do I believe that God can take a quitter like me and make him or her into a hero? Now, most of us would agree that God in heaven can do that. So most of you don't have a real hard time answering question number one. But that's why you have to go further into question number two. Have I deliberately shifted the loyalty of my heart from the false glory of this world to the coming glory of the Lord? Have I deliberately shifted the loyalty of my heart from the false glory of this world to the coming glory of the Lord? of the Lord. God has promised that Christ will bring us salvation with overwhelming glory. Is that what I've staked my life on? It will not do any good to put my faith in God while I keep my heart in this world. God will not underwrite my worldliness with His power. Waiting for the Lord means not only that I trust Him to be true, the rock, as it says in Isaiah 26, but also that I admire Him in His stunning glory. I know 
people who call themselves Christians that leave def- just live defeated lives because they do not see the Lord. It's sad. Everything is about how awful everything is in their life. And they live in a cesspool of junk. And God's not going to support that. What does he say with our eyes? What are they supposed to do? Look up to him. And, And he says, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, he will renew the heart that says to him, whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73, 25. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Saturday morning, January 12th, 1723, Jonathan Edwards wrote these words in his journal. I have been before God and I have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am not in any respect my own. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I have this morning told him that I did take him for my whole portion, looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. What he was saying there, all I want out of my life, what I, I'll be happy to walk away with is God and God alone. Whatever gifts He's given me, I will enjoy and thank Him for His sake. But God is my salvation. God is my strength. Everything else in my existence will find its meaning in reference to God. Or it will have no meaning at all. Paul chart, charted his course that way. Because that, towards the end of his life, what did he say? 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, we are all weak but we don't have to be Superman. God simply calls us to believe, to believe in Him, to accept Christ, to believe in Christ, to set our hearts on things above. And if we will, that longing for God is the channel through which His power will lift us, renew us, and cheer us all the way there that the guys in the concentration camp that had hope were able to plod along in one of the most awful conditions that you could possibly understand, and I think very few of us could even comprehend, and have hope. The word renew means to exchange. 
taking off old clothes, putting on new. We exchange our weakness for His power, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. As we wait before Him, God enables us to soar when there is a crisis, to run when the challenges are many, and walk faithfully in the day-by-day demands of this barbed-wired fence, really weird world life that we live in. It's actually much harder, in my opinion, to walk. Walk in the ordinary pressures of life that most of us walk every single day in. William Carey said it this way. He's the father of modern missions, if you don't know who he is. He was asked about how he has made it through in, in serving the Lord And he said these three words, I can plod. He said this, that is my only genius. I can preserve in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Because you see, the journey of a thousand miles begins with what? One step. The greatest heroes of faith are not always those who seem to be soaring. Often, it's those who are patiently plodding. As we wait on the Lord, He enables us not only to fly higher, run faster, but also to walk longer. So blessed are the plotters, for they eventually arrive at their destination. And the destination is in Christ, in glory, in Him forever. Amen?